Welcome to this week's Week in Review episode of From the Booth, the official podcast of BYU's International Cinema. As I mentioned in the episode earlier this week, we've recently changed the format of what was previously a weekly episode to divide it up into two shorter episodes, one in which we preview the coming week's films and a second in which we discuss the films from the previous week. For the preview shows, we promise no spoilers, but for our Week in Review, we'll talk about the films in more detail and presume that you've seen them, or at least you're not too worried about spoilers. Uh, we've already previewed the coming week's films for our previous episodes, so now we'll turn to discussing last week's films. The films from January 29th to the 1st of February included Marcel Pagnol's 1938 film, The Baker's Wife, In the Isles, a German comedy about modern life by Thomas Stubner from 2018, the first installment of Sergei Berndichuk's epic adaptation of Tolstoy, War and Peace, from 1966, and then finally the documentary El Rio, directed by Juan Carlos Galeano about the people living in the Amazon basin, made in 2019. To discuss these films this time, I've reached out to a number of my colleagues in the College of Humanities, and so we're going to start with The Baker's Wife, and I have with me here Professor Bob Hudson, Associate Professor of French here at BYU. Bob is unique in his academic interest in that he specializes in French Renaissance literature, but is also a real cinephile and teaches the French and Italian cinema course. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about The Baker's Wife, a 1938 film by the great Marcel Pagnol about a small village in Provence. This is normal territory, of course, for Pagnol. Yeah. Uh, it's about a baker and his wife. The wife runs off with a local shepherd, and the baker uh, refuses to bake. And this, of course, in a French village is a crisis. Uh, he's the only baker in the village, and so nobody gets bread until the, the wife comes back. It's a comedy. It's, uh, we talked about in our preview a little bit about uh, Remu, the, the great actor, yeah. and this is one of his really great performances. It is. I mean, you kind of see him becoming mature as an actor here. Orson Welles famously said that Remu was the greatest actor ever. And, um, <laughs> you know, Pagnol was an early adopter of sound in France. He didn't adopt sound as much to have it as sort of a narrative device as it was to sort of can or preserve theater. You know, he yeah. liked to cast his own actors for his plays. He would later be inducted into the French Academy. And, you know, he saw himself first as a literary figure. So yeah. he kind of liked to have this control over his film. So Remy was this actor that he chose for his voice and his ability to capture the mannerisms and inflections of the Provencal accent. Yeah. And, you know, he just does a great job. Well, there. and the dialogue in this is just really, I mean, it's it's quick, it's witty. It's, I mean, you can, you know, it's a, a real person of letters has, has written this. And, I mean, it both captures the flavor and feel of Provence, but he gets into some, I think, really interesting issues, which we, you know, can, can talk about here in a minute. But as well, there's just a real natural kind of rapport between all of the actors. I mean, that's both his script writing, I think, as well as his directing, probably. Yeah, the, the back of the Baker character's name is Aimable, meaning likable. Yeah. Jaime is a very likable character. Less so in the Jean Giono short story, The Excerpt. This comes from Jean Giono's quasi-autobiographical novel called Jean Le Bleu, or Blue Boy. Yeah. Where, you know, his, his writing is a little more dry. Is, it, is that written as a comedy? I haven't read it. It's a, no, no, it's no. A it's more, serious more, of a, more of a memoir story, right? and serious story. Yeah. yeah. You know. It's not always that, that infidelity can be something we can laugh at, but the way it's presented here, it's very, very funny. Yeah, sure. Well, I think one of the reasons it's funny is because it invites us to read it a little bit metaphorically, maybe. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? I think uh, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, the fact that the discussion of the 
uh, Christ and the woman taken in adultery was part of the sermon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of allows for that allegorical reading. There's also the allegorical allegory of uh, give us our daily bread. This right. idea they're not getting their daily bread because the <laughs> the baker, you know, refuses to bake or can't bake. Yeah. Um, he's in such a well, malaise. There's there's such a great tension that's introduced too between the the spiritual and the physical, right? And mm-hmm. and so a lot of the characters, you know, in this village, you know, that the priest is always going around and telling them what they should be doing and that they should be, you know, kind of casting their gaze upwards. But there's there's also uh, you know the, the villagers they you know they don't deny that but at the same time they say yeah but at the same time I got to eat something right and Absolutely. there's that kind of tension that that's constantly I think being explored between uh, looking past the everyday you know and and recognizing the gifts of the everyday I guess yeah and, and there's uh, you know you get this also in other films made by Paniel and adaptations of Paniel's literary work. I kind of saw a parallel between the water coming back on Manon de Source, yeah. you know, which is this big moment of, you know, it was clearly contrived by man. It was her blocking up the uh, the, the, the natural spring. Yeah. And, you know, they think it's a miracle when it comes back. So you do have this sort of transcendent looking towards the heaven, but also real world answers on the lower yeah. level here on earth. So, you know, Manon's unblocking the natural spring and allowing them to have water is much like the uh, furnaces being lit up again at the end of this movie. You yeah. know, it, is it miraculous? Sure. But at the same time, there is a real world explanation for it. And that's kind of what you get with Paniola. You get this attachment to the land, but also this respect for transcendent forces. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you read the the way he portrays the community uh, here. I mean, that seems to be the community itself. I mean, it's ensemble acting, you know, in its Absolutely. truest form that you have all these kind of quirky, you know, village mm-hmm. characters that, you know, that come together. They have their differences. They don't talk to each other. And yet this crisis brings them together in a kind of, you know, interesting and unique way. You know, the southeastern part of France, uh, Provence, is this area that uh, Pagnol, you know, grew up in, that was dear to him, what he wanted to preserve through his theater, through his writing, through his cinema. So he wanted to sort of depict real life. This is kind of slice of life for him. The men getting drunk on pastis and not going to church and yeah. this type of thing is just so, such a part of, of the world as he knew it. Yeah. So... Pagnol was someone who was conservative in the sense that he wanted to preserve something. He saw progress coming, but he didn't necessarily embrace that. So cinema, recording sound, recording the image was a way to capture mannerisms, a way to capture speech patterns that he feared, and justifiably so, might be lost to future generations. Right. Well, and you get the sense, too, perhaps, and, and tell me if I'm shooting past the, you know, the mark here, that the idea of the village in 1938, of course, must feel like a, a site of kind of security and, uh, and nostalgia for the person in the modern city, right? And especially kind of all the changes that have, you know, taken place with, you know, urbanization, industrialization, you know, the way that, um, you know, that city life kind of detaches one from, you know, from people around you. There's a kind of isolation, uh, you know, that's that's experienced, uh, you know, to say nothing of, you know, the, the kind of disruption of World War I. Uh, there's kind of nostalgia for the land, right? And for the simple life, even though, it's probably is a little bit idealized here and that there's there's a kind of toughness and poverty that you know is associated with it too absolutely and i think you don't have to look any further than the legacy of this film that happens in two different ways uh the most recent one is in the 80s i already mentioned manon de source but mm-hmm. this uh whole french government involvement in what they called heritage cinema 
there was uh, Jacques Long, the Minister of Culture, said we wanted to offer bonuses, offer money, offer funding to films that are going to celebrate this pre-war past. And yeah. uh, Manon des Sources and Jean de Florette are two of those that do that. And yeah, they would go to the south of France and they buried electrical lines and were very careful to recreate. They, the paved streets were covered over in dirt. They tried to you know, harken back to this simplistic time before you know, telephone lines where the only person that had a telephone was the mayor who happened to also be the bartender, um, where, um, you know, if you wanted a message to be sent, it had to be carried by someone that had a horse or a mule to the next town. There is sort of this simplicity and and purity in the existence of Provence as Pagnol shows it. And this is for good and bad. Um, Jacques Long, one of the reasons he wanted to finance this film in Heritage Cinema is to show that everything we had in Heritage wasn't good necessarily. All of this emphasis on purity, especially on ethnic purity, was a bad thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Jean de Florette is a a moral tale about a man from the city who tried to come to a simple life in the country and was really rejected for it. And um, it's about this rejection. And I think it was a lesson learned the hard way for Pagnol and his life also. If uh, you consider what happened to both Pagnol and Jean Giono immediately following this film, in 1938, right after that, of course, you have the Nazis invading Poland. Mm-hmm. You have a, a rise in fascism and anti-Semitism in Europe. And when France would be occupied by the Nazis, you'd have the North, the uh, the Nazi-occupied North that went to continental films. Joseph Goebbels is, is directing... And, and sort of calling the shots on what happens there. But what happens in the the south of France, the, the occupied Vichy zone, the free zone, I should say, is the COIC, which is an organizing committee on film. And they said they're going to borrow the new modified slogan for France. You know, it used to be after the revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. Now it is work, family, and homeland. So films Mm. need to focus on this sort of rural agrarian South that is the new fate, the destiny of France. And that was easy for Pagnol. He'd been doing that for years. He was already focusing on that area. So, you know, Jean Giono, who also was from this region, who also celebrated it in his writings, both of them were somewhat blacklisted for a while at least as potential Nazi collaborators for having sort of presented this image of France instead of fighting against the Nazis. So it's this really interesting uh, moment there that you see as well. Yeah, although, I mean, to to be fair to them, you know, 1938, kind of, of course, before the, you know, the benefit of historical hindsight, Mm -hmm. you know, they're already making that and they're being celebrated for it, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you look at the uh, what what Pétain and Vichy France's what they were after, you know, they you, you speaking of family and work, we see these like, oh those are good things, right? It's yeah. kinda of like family values when that's thrown about today. You're like, yeah. oh that that's a good thing. And then you start digging a little bit and you start peeling the onion back and you're like, Oh wow, you know, there was anti Semitism as part of it. There was this sort of squashing of any ideology that doesn't conform to their yeah. view of the world and it becomes problematic. And I think Pagnol has sort of moved past that. I think we have seen the genius in his work. The fact that, you know, he is coming out on Criterion Collection now, he's celebrated again, is a great thing. Yeah. Um, but you do have to, you know, with the simplistic rural idealization, there comes this sort of negative backstory that's important to know also. Yeah. Okay, well, great. Well, Bob, thanks so much for being with us here to talk about The Baker's Wife. All right, it was a pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>
And now to talk about In the Isles, I've asked a good friend, Rob McFarland, professor of German, to join us. We've regularly co-taught together. We co-teach the German and Scandinavian cinema class. Rob, thanks for taking time to be here. My pleasure. What did you think of In the Isles? How does this film, um, how did this film strike you? How does it fit in with other German films that, that are coming out right now? It has some of the same aesthetics of other German films. We've got these long takes. We've got very, very spare music. It's a very pared down cinema that seems to be leading in German filmmaking right now. But on the other hand, this, this film has something that a lot of them don't, and that is an intense, beautiful humanism that is uh, sometimes a little stark in other places. But in this one, it, the human story stands at the center. Yeah, even though we, like you're saying, the, the you know, milieu here that are, you know, big box store, you know, that this is kind of a site of hyper-modernity and globalization, and there's a kind of dehumanizing aspect to it all. And yet it gives us a lot of warmth, you know, actually, right? That it's this, the contact between these people are far more generous than what one could probably expect in real life. Well, this is what shocked me is that we start in the beginning you see you're, you talked about the spaces of hyper modernity and i thought immediately of mark Auger yeah and his uh his ideas that airports and gas stations and supermarkets or these these big box container stores that they are these places that show what the modern condition is that we have yeah. no root that we have no family anymore and we just float from place to place with nothing that sticks and with nothing that is really homey and conducive of human, you know, not in the human scale and not about the human life anymore. And we're introduced to that with these horrible, you know, this, this artificial light at everything and the lights going yeah. on. And off. But the, from the very, very first, that is countered as this, as this forklift moves out and all of a sudden, anyone who is, <laughs> knows German culture, classical music at all, recognizes the strains of the Blue Danube Waltz by right. uh, Johann Strauss. And as these uh, pieces of machinery come out, it is beautiful. Yeah. It's choreographed. It's a dance. And we're supposed to read this as beautiful. Right. As, and it is a strong contrast to the thing we're being shown, yeah. which we know that, wait, this is something different than is going to be... Other, in other places in the film, the, the soundtrack doesn't come in to heighten emotion. Mm -hmm. But at a few places, we, we get it, and it's specifically this classical music playing. The other place, of course, is when it's time for the night shift to start right. the first time, and he starts playing this beautiful classical piece, which then surrounds everything that's going on. And so it's diegetic music. It's yeah. music in the world of the film, and yet it is music that completely changes the way that we receive what's going on the way we understand what's going on it's it's a very human story of beauty and even though these these stark commercial bounds are there that, that keep these people in in this in this bad lighting and in, in awful <laughs> conditions we understand that, that that there is something at the human heart of this place that stands that, that's the opposite very much yeah. the opposite it's very human very caring very beautiful yeah, no, it's interesting. It won the uh, Economical Prize at uh, Berlin when it came out, right? Which is a, you know, a prize that's given for films that celebrate humanity in in some kind of way, right? And so it's not a religious film, I wouldn't say, but it is a very human film in in so far that it's it's wanting to understand these abilities to form human connections amidst things that are like you're saying they're not real places. They're not, I mean, products that can be bought and sold. It's all about their exchange value. They don't have any kind of inherent value to them. But what does have value is the is the connection between these characters. Now, 
you know, because we're we're doing this as a you know reviewing the film, we can you know don't have to worry about any spoilers here. And we say that one of the main characters commits suicide despite this, right? Despite these human kinds of connections, is the film simply saying that this is not enough? That um, that we can kind of try to counteract this sort of uh, dehumanizing effect of our modern culture, but ultimately something else is needed. Or how do you well, read it? The suicide is really really ambivalent. We see this the the characters Bruno and Christian. We, we think at the beginning there's everything set up for the kind of human interactions that would match the awful architecture. Yeah. Right? We've got hierarchy. We've got unbelievable rules. This can't happen. That <laughs> cannot right. happen. That's right. You cannot smoke. You cannot eat out of the dumpsters when you're throwing things <laughs> away. And yet immediately the human element overcomes it. He says, they understand I'm going to smoke because if I'm going to smoke, I'm going to quit and they can't do without me. Right. Right. And so he's smoking in there and they all eat out of the dumpsters, enjoying it. They have these things. They, 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 they make space for it. They create, you know, there's Siberia. We don't talk with That's Siberia. Right. We, they don't use ours, but we get along with it. So it's an enclosed world, right? You right. have the ocean, you have Siberia, you have, and the, the alliances and and, um, and uh, um, tensions exist almost like geopolitics within the store, right? Well, and not only that, you've got this intense geopolitical past. The idea that this is now a great supermarket, but it once was a trucking company. Right. Where a lot of them already worked in the kind of antediluvian days of, of the GDR, of, of East Germany, where they worked as truckers and had this mobility and had a, 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 had a status that they don't have anymore. Mobility in East Germany was something that was completely limited. The wall was there. Yeah, you were controlled at every turn. And yet these people had absolute mobility, which brings us back to our suicide. Bruno, who commits suicide, says, I really miss the road. Yeah. On the other hand, the night he commits suicide is not the night of his despair. This is a different night. This is a night where he finally, after having all of these interactions with people and getting to know Christian, the main character, yeah. he picks him up at the at that horribly lit uh, bus stop <laughs> yeah. where even where you know where even Christian in this horribly lit bus stop makes friends with the bus driver, right? Mm -hmm. So he picks him up. He takes him to his home revealing without saying it that he really doesn't have a wife, that he really doesn't have all these things. He's bearing his soul. He's opening himself to him. He's letting him in, probably on the last night he's alive, understanding that this is what he's going to do. And he's going out with human connection. He's going out with dignity. He's going out with love yeah. and, with, and with connections. It's not something aimed at punishing the people that he's been around. It's something that is only possible and that he's he's coming to to grips with himself and t before he takes that that final leap he invites someone there and makes that human connection and so it's a again a very human and this is this is the way i thought about it when we were only a little bit into the film and the old woman is, is handing out the things as they're coming in and she <laughs> greets him says hi, hi you know, little guy it's nice to see i realize this is a film that gives these people whom nobody cares about the, the, the workers at a place yeah it gives him absolute dignity. Yeah. That is the one word that every worker there has is dignity. And they give it to each other. They're not given to it by the company, by the rules, certainly not as, you know. Right. All this, the structure doesn't give the dignity. It's the choice right. that they make. And they, they, send, they send Christian off to learn to drive a forklift, which is this awful demeaning class, which is very cynical and whatever. But when he comes back, it is that proving that he's done the forklift that that welcomes him into the family. That's his last initiation, right? Into a family that takes really a lot of interest in him and a lot of care of him, of Marion, the woman that he's in love with, who's in a bad marriage. They are they are a family that take care of each other in this place and give each other dignity and have chosen to make this a, a place of 
human connection in a dehumanizing world. Right, yeah, taking those forms of, of modernity and, and globalization and and turning them against each other in interesting kinds of ways. You're getting us to, you know, to rethink them in, in certain ways. Your, your point, I think, about human connection, I think, is really good, that we, we live in an age when connection, at least theoretically, is, is more likely and more possible than ever before, you know, facilitated by social media and all of these kinds of things. And yet what we see, sociologically speaking, I think, is greater and greater isolation. And it's, it's highlighting that, not in a focus on social media, but through the architecture, as you're saying, through the, you know, the hierarchies of modern corporate culture and, and things like that. And it's offering this hope that there can be a resistance ultimately to this. But it's not the technology and the architecture and the, the structure of the market is not going to do that for us. We have to make that decision ourselves. Well, but the suicide also shows how tenuous it is. Yeah. If it took, it would take one person coming in there and really pushing the corporate line and firing a couple of people and quote unquote, getting them back into line and making it an ordinance and making them, you know, well working cogs in a machine to ruin all of that. So this is a, right. a local point of resistance. It's not a movement. Yeah. And it's not something that's built into the system. What it shows is that you need a system that humanizes, that really appreciates and gives dignity to the people who are not on the top, to the people who we need <clears throat> and yet who are not given a lot of respect to these kind of flowing jobs. You see this especially as Christian comes into contact with his old world, the tattoo drinking world, yeah. which was absolutely destructive, mm -hmm. absolutely destructive for him. These are not friends. These are people who use each other up. It made him lose his last job. And so th there's every possibility that, that he could slip right back into that. And that is a, a shorthand for an entire class of people in Germany who now are choosing the ultra-nationalist, right-wing populist parties and turning away from everything. There's this anger, there's this destruction that they feel they, they, they need somebody to scream, to yell for them. Same thing right. happening here in America in a lot of ways. And yet he is saved from that, from that whole destructive cycle by a minimal job that is really, really embarrassing and really awful. And yet he wants to go back to, he looks forward to going back. He talks yeah. about how awful it is the first time. And yet he dies to go back there. And, and they when, talk about our store, right? right? That there's this this way that they take ownership of it in a in a caring, you know, kind of relationship. And watch out for each other. He has a family. Yeah. He has a small unit in the larger unit of society. And that is the only way to rescue the people who've been left behind in globalization. Yeah. And yet there is no systematic help. We have we have the church. Yeah. The church is our in-between. But imagine a world where there's the corporation and there's yeah. you and the rest of the world who seem to be getting ahead. And it's uh, it, it seems like if, if the, the message of this movie is, if it weren't for these group of people, where would he be? And there's nothing that we're doing right to, to make this happen. It's that group of people themselves yeah. who have chosen life and chosen positivity and chosen to care for people yeah great rob thanks so much for being here thank you for sharing this film with me joining me now to talk about el rio we have professor mac wilson who's professor in the department of spanish and portuguese mac thanks for being here with me thank you for the invitation uh your uh, specialties you're interested in uh eco poetry uh literatures of south america uh, and uh, you're the one who invited Juan Carlos Galeano, who's the filmmaker of El Rio, uh, to come here to campus. How did you first get to know him? Juan Carlos and I uh, sort of met by way of my dissertation. My dissertation advisor knew Juan Carlos because of his poetry and because of his work in eco-criticism. So he suggested, my, my dissertation advisor, Jorge Marconi, 
suggested that Juan Carlos would be a great reader of my dissertation that was on uh, eco poetry from the Southern Cone. So that was the first contact I had, and then several conferences, one that you and I actually attended uh, All right. in, in Kansas in 2011, I believe. Uh, I, I met with him briefly. We had lunch with a big group, and, uh, and uh, I've always wanted to invite him out here because uh, of his great poetry, but also his, uh, the variety of things he does. He actually read his poetry this time he came, introduced his film, right, and also give a, a, a talk about a study abroad he leads in the Amazon. So yeah, he is uh, sort of a Renaissance man in that sense. Yeah. So what's your what's your take on this film? How what, what's the the big takeaway for you? Well, I'm actually pretty interested in these documentaries coming from Latin America that are trying to communicate something about place. I'm interested in in the ways they do it. In, in this case, El Rio. It was compelling to me that it, the narrative came across through the participants. I'm sure there was, of course, there was editing put into place, and even Juan Carlos mentioned sort of acts. He thought of them as, you know, one, two, maybe three acts mm-hmm. in this. And he was able to construct that out of what he got from these, these people, um, these uh, indigenous people. And he's not um, from there originally, but sp- has spent a lot of time. He spent a lot of time there as a child, and then uh, and then back. So it's he has this kind of insider outsider perspective, you know, maybe on this this region, of kind of the upper Amazon. Yeah. Well, he was. He actually was born in the Colombian Amazon, which is close to. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was born there, and he lived. I think he said until he was around, you know, eighteen, time to go to college, and so. As he explains it in a couple of his talks, that when he was here, he would go to bed. Or he would ask people to tell him these stories uh, of the Amazon, and then he would go to bed, um, depending on what story he heard, you know, with nightmares and with dreams. <laughs> but uh, he explained his trajectory that he, after leaving the Amazon as a teenager and as an early adult, I guess, he's always been drawn back. And he has been going back for several decades now. But what brought this documentary about is his work with this community. So these are people he knows. Yeah. He's heard their stories before, and he's seen their relationship with the river. So I, I would say without any doubt, this is very personal for him. Yeah. So how is the relationship with the, how do these people relate to the river in a way that's different than, than say, the, you know, the corporate executive or the politician, people who are typically making the big decisions about the way that the river is, is to be managed? Well, it's interesting because we might, those who don't live on the river and those who think of the Amazon River, we may have quite a bit of a romantic idea of living on the river. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to hear the perspective of these uh, indigenous in the sense that they're from there and they have indigenous roots. But, you know, as you see in the film, they're, they're wearing modern clothes. They use motorboats, things like that. Right. So they're not completely indigenous in that sense. But it's very practical. It's their roadway. It's their bathtub. It's their recreation. It's an extension of who they are. And so part of the documentary when there is a change to the river affected by machinery by the government 
there's quite a, 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 a change to their relationship in some sense, in the, or at least it reveals in the sense that how that hurt them or how that changed them, uh, and how much the health of the river and the health of this community go hand in hand. Yeah, I thought it interesting too how the folklore, and they get into you know telling some of these stories in the film in, in a really marvelous way, but how the folklore you know seems to to be so much about how they how they connect with the river and so it's all metaphor in a in a sense yeah. right that explaining the you know the what what good treatment is what you know, what bad treatment is i mean that there's cautionary tales about the dangers of of taking certain things for granted or not showing respect in mm-hmm. you know in certain types of ways and it's interesting how the you know stories that might not have anything to do with water per se are you know are really about how do we you know what is our general attitude about place how do we view our own relationship to place is it just kind of it doesn't seem to ever come across as inert matter you know resources to simply be used in whatever way one sees fit that one lives more in a kind of an an interactive interdependent you know relationship with it recognizing that yes i i use this resource but at the same time i am dependent on on it in in kind of perpetuity and kind of going forward and therefore have to you know maybe um think differently than how we think when we get most of our you know the things that we use for everyday life from the grocery store where i don't have to think about the you know the chain of how this was produced and how this came to me along with that that practicality is this very spiritual life yeah that it's it's a spiritual connection at the same time as being very material and so that shows sort of this uh, natural, as it were, connection and supernatural at the same time and how that comes together. And it's just very easy for them to live that way I mean, in the sense that they don't separate those things. That's not, there's no dualism there. They are completely calling it the God of their, where they get their food and also the physical place where they get their food. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's one and the same. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about how our spirituality is affected by the kind of the specialization of modern life, right? That that I, I turn on the tap and water simply comes out. You know, I flush the toilet and it simply disappears. That I yeah. I very rarely have to deal with where it's coming from and, and that maybe there's a spiritual cost to that where I, it's harder to be grateful and, and thankful and it's harder to understand the bigger picture. Absolutely. I think uh, if, especially in our religion, if when we're praying for a blessing on the food, if we really put our our minds to it and think about who how the food came to our, our table, at least in my case, it feels like I'm much more grateful to actually consider not only the seed and the water and the, the taking care of it, but those who work to bring it even to the supermarket so I can go and, and buy That's it. Right. There's, there's a lot longer process, a lot more hands involved than in the case of these this community next to the river it's directly they can see it they can touch it and it's obvious more obvious to them maybe yeah all right mac thanks so much for for being here and talking to us about el rio thank you so much and now with us to talk about war and peace we have dewey walter who is a graduate student in comparative studies uh, he's done a lot of work with media studies uh, dewey thanks for being here nice to be here Tell me your your overall impressions of, of coming to Bondarchuk's work. I know that you don't necessarily do a lot of work in Russian-Soviet film per se, but what are your impressions of this, kind of the ambition of this project and this part one? So I was really looking forward to the release of this movie. On There's a new restoration that I think Janice put out just this year. 
I guess last year now, we're in 2020. So I was really looking forward to it just because of the amount of film in the film, right? It's seven plus hours. I was like, what could this possibly be? I had never read the book. And so that's what initially drew me to it was just the ambition of the project. Yeah. Well, this was shot on 70 millimeter film, on bad 70 millimeter film. (laughs) One of the reasons to say it was Soviet stock that they, I guess they had a lot of trouble with. I was reading somewhere that they had to reshoot some of these scenes Mm, like 40 times. Um, (laughs) They'd get back and they would, you know, it wouldn't develop well. But but the 70 millimeter format, you know, when it's working, can give you a really clear image. And I know that some of the, the copies that previous to this release of this restoration that were being used here around the college to teach, um, were like these old digital transfers from VHSs. Mm. I mean, they just, they look awful. Yeah. I can't imagine what trying to watch this would be. And yeah, this, it leaps off the screen, doesn't it? Oh, the, yeah. Really, the beauty yes. of the image, they've restored the colors, and there's a lot of the grandeur, I think, has come back. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and it's amazing the kinds of things that Moss Film is able to do in this, especially with scale, right? Yeah. Not just in terms of how long the movie is, but in terms of like how deep each image is, right? So yeah. a lot of the times you'll see someone in the foreground having a small conversation, and then the camera will pan just, you know, a couple degrees over, and we have extras walking miles and miles over these hills yeah and you know this is they didn't i don't know how they organize all yeah, their there's extras. no cell phones or <laughs> things like phones. that that's i right. don't know maybe walkie talkies or something yeah but yeah, no, it's it is quite a feat. And you think about even in the in the scenes, the interior scenes, there's a certain complexity to uh, the choreography that you know just the blocking of it. I, I was watching a on the Criterion disc. There's a, a special make the making of mm-hmm. you know kind of thing, and they were showing what was going on behind the camera to get just the right people to come you know in mm-hmm. the frame at the right time. And you're right, it's it's pretty complex both on the interior scale and then you know that the complexity yeah. <laughs> once you go outside and you get 10,000 extras it's it must be infinitely more complex right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i think that in some ways that this captures something about the book you know when you do an adaptation there's a temptation sometimes to want to account for all of those little storylines that people will recognize and and you have to signpost mm-hmm, somehow mm-hmm. and that is like the death of an adaptation yeah, because yeah. it just it it sags under its own weight it doesn't hold together it doesn't feel like a film it feels like it's trying to be a book yeah. and i think Wondercheck makes really prudent use of the the themes that he's going to pursue. He's going to follow those stories. He just kind of lets a lot, lot of other things go by the wayside, which is fine. If you want those, read the book, right? <laughs> um, but he gets at some of that complexity still in these scenes that you're talking about, mm-hmm. where there's so much going on that we don't have to kind of follow it all, but mm. you do get a sense that there's this world that extends out from beside the characters mm-hmm. out in every direction. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of interiors where they'll be having a dinner or be having a ball or some kind of a of a get together and there are all of these other people there right and you right. have a sense that like they all actually do know each other even if we don't sit and talk with they see our characters talk with them right yeah. but probably the aficionados of Tolstoy will be like oh that's probably so and so or that's such and such character that might have gotten cut that's right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And it plays too into the the other thing I think you see going on in these films where there's this tension between macroscopic and the microscopic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get this from the very opening shot where you're kind of moving through this landscape. Yeah. You're seeing plants growing dirt and, and dirt and you're and... getting this weird electronic music. <laughs> and after, you know, not much time, you're pulling up and you're up in the clouds, mm-hmm. right? That you mm-hmm. have, you know, the, these two images that are presented in tension with each other. And then he tries to do something similarly 
really kind of temporally and you get these voices and sounds mm. you know that, that start getting overlaid you know on top of each other uh, that there's this kind of simultaneity that all of these things are are going to be presented to us but we're mm. going to have to talk to, to grasp it to wrap our heads around it we're going to have to toggle between the specific characters and their individual lives and what's going mm. on and the fact that they're they're individual actors in this grand play that's 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 mm-hmm. playing out that mm-hmm. has to do with global forces and you know yeah. armies and yeah. you know that are that are engaging with each other and, yeah uh, and you get that same uh, zoom out basically yeah. between from the dirt to the aerial photography in some of the battle scenes as well where you'll go from povs of individual soldiers on the battlefield like riding their horse and it'll be a handheld right yeah and then all of a sudden we'll cut back to basically like a telescopic view of where you know napoleon is like looking literally like through his telescope at the battlefield right and so we are getting both ends mark purvis in his lecture talked about for tolstoy humanity didn't exist it's just a a lot of humans right and i think the the film really captures this really well through this this um zooming in and out kind of uh, structure yeah no i think that's right what do you make of the characters that we have andre and we have pierre that are friends but i think they're supposed to contrast with each other Mm -hmm. in in certain kinds Mm -hmm. of ways too right you have andre that's a little bit cold distanced he's obsessed with history he's not content with his domestic life his you know his beautiful wife he seems very cold and distant Mm -hmm. from pierre is is very human and and likable but he doesn't seem to have much self-control right and then he kind of falls into this uh, decadent lifestyle mm-hmm. and I mean, how do you see these kind of playing with each other i see andre as being extremely self-assured yeah right and pierre as being the opposite of that right uh, we get a lot of internal narration from Pierre, mm-hmm. um, who's played incidentally by the director. Yes, in yes, this that's film, right. It's an interesting side. Um, and so his voiceover really gives you this sense that like he does not, he doesn't feel like he has a place. Yeah. Right. There's a there's a placelessness to him that. And he's wandering through all of these episodes. He's like wandering in and through without belonging. Yes, isn't he? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And then whereas Andre has a clear idea of where he wants to be, it's just not where he is Mm -hmm. right and so both of them are in this sense of placelessness for lack of a better term but one is because of their own desire and one is just seemingly inability to right yeah no i think that's right i think that's a really good reading of it i've heard some of the or i've read in some of the commentary that tolstoy really saw himself in pierre um Mm -hmm. in in that he had a similar kind of life trajectory (laughs) insofar that he you know kind of partied in his youth kind of sobered Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. and and really wanted to believe in you know that there's redemption for Mm -hmm. you know for people like that and i wonder if bandarchuk is the same and that's why he cast himself maybe yeah that's that's exactly (laughs) right incidentally bandarchuk's wife plays the part of Helene, his uh, who Pierre oh. marries. Yeah, yeah. It's a loveless marriage. I I, yeah, I, I don't want to project too much on. I have no idea what Bondarchuk's relationship was with his with his wife. Um, but the uh, one of the things that's notable about this film is it comes out about a decade after King Vidor's 
uh, adaptation of Tolstoy. Mm. And in fact, a lot of ways, it's the, the, the that adaptation is what motivated the, the, the Russians, the Soviets were a little bit incensed that, mm-hmm. you know, that this was taken up by the Americans and handled somewhat poorly in their in their mind. And, uh, you know, Henry Fonda is... It's the height of the Cold War. Henry Fonda plays the, you know, the part of Pierre, and uh, it's probably miscast. Uh, Audrey Hepburn plays the part of Natasha, um, to much acclaim, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably no... Um, no surprise that when they when Bondarchuk cast you know the actress for Natasha's role that she she is kind of channeling <laughs> a lot of Audrey Hepburn yes. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways here, um, but it's you know it's a prestige project and so you know the most expensive Soviet film project ever made. Mm-hmm. There, there will never be another film made with the, no. well, unlikely that there will ever be a film made with the kind of resources that the the Soviet state you know threw behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, these are not CGI battle scenes. These are you know <laughs> these are really yeah. tens of thousands yeah. of extras that are running around in some quasi. You know, well, and, it, and it's, it's almost it's almost surreal to watch it now, especially me growing up in the age of CGI and film, right? So when I see something like that, my in my immediate response is, "Oh, great, that's that's nice yeah. CG." And then, but watching this, you you are constantly reminded, like, "Oh, wait, no, that's like that's actual like that little dot that's moving way out there is like a real person, and they're in costume, and it's like a real costume, yeah. and like we didn't just." We didn't just CG all of these people or CG the costumes or do any, you know, That's uh, right. the amazing things we can do now. It's just, that it was just manpower, right? Yeah. Soviet style. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's pretty it's pretty unique that way. Well, thanks for, for being here to talk about it with us. Um, Thank you. This will be running for the next few weeks at International Cinema. We've showed the first one. If you haven't seen the first episode, I think you can jump in and, and pick up. We'll be providing some summaries of what's happened before. Um, but even so, I think that each of the episodes in a lot of ways stand kind of on their own yeah, as, as films. Thank you for joining us today. For our Week in Review on From the Booth, Uh, From the Booth is produced by the BYU International Cinema Program, and the hosts and guests are solely responsible for the ideas and opinions that are expressed here. Support for the podcast and the program comes from the BYU College of Humanities. Our sound engineer is Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt. We'll be back with our next preview show at the beginning of next week. Until then, we hope to see you in 250 of the Kimball Tower. Thanks, Dewey. Thanks.